0: In the meantime, why don't we open up to Isaiah chapter 44, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 23 this morning in a message entitled, Live in the Past. You're probably not often told that, right? Live in the past. We're usually told to stop living in the past, which usually means, hey, stop holding on to maybe your former glories, you know, or maybe you need to let some things go that are keeping you and holding you back. You know, Maybe you're holding on to outdated ideas or outdated ways of living. And that's usually what's meant when, they t- when we're told to stop, to, speak, to stop living in the past. And so is there ever a time where living in the past is a good thing? I'm going to propose that it is. And in our text this morning, I think God is calling the nation of Israel to live in the past a little bit. You know, this week, me and uh, Mindy and I, we were gathering pictures for our son Josiah's yearbook. He's graduating this year. Um, he's a senior in high school. It's hard to believe. You know, and as parents, you, you go through photos and you're looking at old photos and you're remembering all the, you know, just him, your son, or your daughter growing up and all the special times that God gave you in the past and maybe even some hard times that God got you through. And you're remembering all that God did and how God blessed you so much. And so sometimes it's good to do that, to remember, hey, what God has done for you and what God has brought you through. And so that's kind of what I'm going to look at this morning when we go through the text, because God, through the prophet Isaiah, is going to call his people, Israel, to listen to a message. He's going to call them, in essence, to live in the past or at least remember the past. And for those of you that take notes, he's going to say these four things to them because, as you know, the context of the message this morning, or at least the text, Israel is is being prepared for a time of captivity. They're going to go into captivity for 70 years. And God wants them to remember how much he loves them. And specifically, in this morning's message, he wants them to remember this when they go through the hard times. Number one, he wants them to remember who they are to God, who they are to God. Number two, he wants them to remember who God is to them. And thirdly, he wants them to remember what God has done. And fourthly, he wants them to remember what God promises to do. So again, these are, those are the four aspects that we're going to cover this morning about living in the past. Again, remember who they are to God. Remember who God is to them remember what God has done, and remember what God promises to do. Now, although we're talking about Israel, the nation of Israel, or the people Israel, this holds true for every believer today as well. Because in the the same way, we are his people, like the nation of Israel is in this context, and we would do well to remember those four things as well. We need to remember who we are in God. And who God is to us. And what God has done for us. And what God promises to do. So with that, let's look at the text. And let's read. And I'm going to explain as we go along. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. And the prophet Isaiah says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. And so this first section right here is our first point that God wants Israel, he's calling them to listen because they're about to go through some hard things, and he wants them to remember who they are to God. He wants them to know, you can see all the things that God calls his people, he calls them, you are my servants. You're my servants. Israel has been called to serve God. If you know the story of the nation of Israel, they have been called to serve God in this world. They had a certain task and purpose as a nation. You remember before we uh, started, well, maybe, no, it's been a few years. Well, before we started the book of Isaiah, we went through the Ten Commandments and we had a series on the Ten Commandments. And right before we went into the individual commandments. God calls the nation Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verses four through five. He kind of gives them their marching orders about who they are and how they are to serve him. So they weren't just called just to be God's precious people. They were called for a purpose. And in Exodus nine, four through five, let's read that it says this. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be for to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You see, Israel was called to be servants. They were called to be priests and a holy nation, and the priest is the one who... Re- who intercedes between God and men. And Israel was supposed to be that for all the nations eventually. So they weren't called just to have this special place of honor. They were called for a purpose, to be servants for God. And so here God is reminding them through the prophet Isaiah that you guys are my servants. You have a special place And he also says, you have been chosen. You see, Israel, again, was specifically called out, it says, from the rest of the nations. They have a special place in the eyes of God to be his servants. Again, they're his own possession. He's basically saying, you guys are to know me personally. We have a personal covenant. There's an intimate relationship between the nation of Israel and their God. a matter of fact, if you look at verse Uh, two there's a name that you might not have heard before i don't remember reading this at all and it's Jeshurun. and many commentaries believe that it is a special name for the people of israel it's like a term of endearment you know as a father or a mother has a special name for their child now we won't i won't embarrass my children by telling you their special names they would kill me probably but you know what i mean as parents we have like little names that we call our children And here in Isaiah, God is doing that. He calls Israel Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Again, showing them how special they are to him. You are my servant. You're my chosen one. We have this special relationship. He gave them a different name. How often do we see in the Old Testament and even in the New, where God gives his children or those that he calls, he gives them a new name. You can remember Abram. He gave the name Abraham. And Jacob, he gave the name Israel. Or think of the Apostle Peter or Saul of Tarshish. All those men, those are just a few, were given a new name by God, showing their special place of privilege and, and intimate relationship would be a better way of saying that. And in the same way, us as, as the church, we too have a special name to God. We have a special relationship with him. We've been... Called out of this world to have a special relationship with him as well. It's interesting to note that in the book of Revelation, if you could turn there with me if you like, Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, he specifically says he's going to give those who persevere a new name. And it says this Revelation 2 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I think about a year or two ago, one of the brothers in this church, I I must have read this verse and talked about it before, he gave me a little white stone that he picked up in Big Bear, and I have it on my desk at work to always remind me that I'm going to have a new name. You know Whether it's literally or spiritual, I don't know, but it's just a reminder that to carry on, to persevere, whatever's going on in my life, there's a new name. God has something new for me as an individual believer that's just in a, a way of encouragement for myself. And so again, God is letting Israel know how special they are to him. You're special to me. Don't forget who you are. You're a servant. You're chosen. Even though you're going through hard times Don't forget who you are in Christ or in God, specifically here. And he goes on, not only was he his servant and he was chosen, but look at verse 2 Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb. He says, I made you, I created you, not only as a nation, but also individuals. And he formed them, he fashioned them as a nation and as individuals. Again, these are ways of God showing his special relationship with his people. I know you intimately. Not only are you my servant, are you chosen, but I made you and I formed you and I fashioned you. King David in Psalm 139, 13 has a great verse about this intimate knowledge that God has with his people or with his creation. He says, for you formed my inner parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. The baby in the mother's womb was specifically made and formed by God, showing how special each and every life is. So again, God's reminding Israel, you're about to go through a hard time as we've been looking over the past few weeks, but don't forget to re- and remember that you're my servant. You're my chosen child, my chosen nation. I made you and I formed you. And look at this. He says, I will help you. So not only does he do all those things, but he promises to help the nation. And why does he tell them that? Look at the very next verse after who will help you. Or the verse next, he says, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you Jeshuam, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. No matter what you go through, Israel, remember you're my servant, you're my you're my chosen one. I formed you. I made you. And I'm going to help you, so do not fear. Again, how many times you and I have gone through this before? Probably when something bad happens, sometimes our knowledge about God tends to go out the window momentarily. We forget that God is still in control, that God through his love has allowed whatever is in our life to happen for a purpose, But we need to live in the past and remember who God is. So not only, again, is this true for the nation Israel, but this is true for the individual believer, the church, because of what Christ has done, that we too are his servants. We too are chosen, fashioned, informed, and are promised that he will help us. Therefore, we should not fear. We don't have to fear, because God is going to help us. And in verses three through five, he describes how he's going to help the nation Israel. He says, I'm your help in in times of trouble. I'm going to provide for you. Provide for you physically and spiritually. So don't run off and look for other things to help you. He's This has been an issue with the nation of Israel here as we've been going through this, that they're running off and looking to other gods, looking for other people to help them because they can't wait for God for whatever. They don't think God is going to help them, but God is saying, Hey, if I've chosen you, and I've made you my servant, don't you think I'm going to help you in whatever it is that you're going through, both physically and spiritually? That's what's talked about in verses 3 through 5. I like in verse 5 where it stresses um, that in in your faithfulness, Israel, as you guys hold on to me and trust me that I'm going to, to draw more people into the kingdom. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says, this one will say, I am the Lord. So he's describing it as as Israel is staying faithful to God that people are going to see that and be drawn to that because what God is doing in the life of the nation of Israel. He says, for this one will say, I am the Lord's and that one will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand belonging to the Lord and will name Israel's name with honor, so again, this describes Israel's special mission to the world was not just to be God's special people, but they were to be a light to the world, and thus God would glorify Himself through the nation of Israel and draw all men to Himself. That's a consistent promise to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, and that it is finally finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. And so, here again, the first point for the nation of Israel is to remember who they are in or who they are to God. And for each and every one of us, we need to remember who we are to God. God's not going to leave us or forsake us. He's chosen us as his special people. So let's go on to the to the next part and find out who God is to us. So as I said, we find out who God is or who we are to God, but who are we? Who is he? To us. And let's look at that next point. In verses 6 through 9, let's read the text and then we'll come back and point out specifically what God says. And as I read this, think about all the things that God says who He is to the nation of Israel. And you can see uh, the correlation of who He is to us as the church. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts I am the first and I am the last. And there is no God beside me. And who is like me, let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place, do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. So God is telling the nation of Israel, again, as they're about to go into captivity, number one, remember who you are to me and remember who I am to you. And what does he say he is to the nation of Israel? He tells them, I am the king of Israel. Does not the king protect his kingdom and the people in his kingdom? A righteous king does, and that's what God is. So he's telling the nation of Israel, I'm your king. Don't forget that. Even when things look bad and even when you go into captivity, I am the king of Israel. Not only that, he says, I am your redeemer. I'm your redeemer. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back. That should remind them. Not only have I brought you out of all of the nations, I promise to bring you out of captivity. He's declared that as well, and he's reminding them of that. And not only is God a king and a redeemer, he says, I'm the Lord of hosts, meaning I'm the God of the entire universe. I'm not just one of many kings or one of many gods. I am the first and last. I'm the only God. And he says that there's no one else besides me. And then he goes on to describe Hey, you guys know who I am. I've declared things to you that other gods, lowercase g and in air quotes, cannot do. They have not said. All those gods that the nation of Israel has run to, they have not helped you. They have not saved you. Only I am the one. I am your rock. And he says, you are my witness to this. this. You have heard this from me. You already know these things, but you keep forgetting. You need to remember all these things that I've told you. Even when bad times come, remember that I'm your King, your Redeemer, the God of the universe, and I am the only God. And then in verse 8, he reminds them again because of this, do not tremble and do not be afraid. So again, after he tells them who they are to him, he says, don't be afraid. Then after he tells them who he is to them, he says, don't tremble, don't be afraid. We need to remember these things and the exact same thing holds true for you and me as the church. God is also our king, our redeemer. He's the God of this universe and he is the only God. There is no other. These are promises that are, that are true for the church as well and we are witnesses of these things. We hear these things declared over and over again. Let's not forget them. In verses 9 through 20, God's going to make a, a stark contrast. So again, he says, who you are to me, who I am to you. In 9 through 20, he's going to talk about idolatry and the false gods and who the people are to the false gods and who the false gods are to the people. Look at verse 9. He says, those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. So he tells them right off from the bat, those who make idols are nothing, unlike Israel. He goes, you guys are something, you're special, you're chosen, you're a servant, I formed you, I made you, but these people that make idols, they are nothing to the idols. And not only that, the the idols themselves, he says, they're of no profit. They are nothing. They have no meaning to the individual people that make them. Unlike God, the God of Israel, who is the king of the universe, who's the redeemer, who does all these things. So he's making that contrast to false gods. You're nothing to a false god because they are nothing. And they do no profit to you as well. And let's just read through this just so you understand what he's, or how he describes the futility of idolatry and he goes who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit behold all his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are mere men let them all assemble themselves let them stand up and let them tremble let them together be put to shame again a contrast god is saying you don't tremble you don't be afraid But those people who trust in false gods, they tremble, and they are afraid. Verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with strong arm. He also gets hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with the compass. And makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. So he's describing the process of idol-making. He's saying that men make these idols, unlike God, who is not made by anyone. He is totally uh, unique and distinct from his own creation. But he's showing them that your idols that you're worshiping are part of your own creation. Going on, look at verse 14. He says, surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread and he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. He's saying, You guys are making this idol out of a tree that you planted. Half of it you use to bake bread, and the other half you're using or they're using to worship. Verse 16, half of it burns. Half of it burns in the fire over this, and half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. So again, he's showing the contrast. You guys are going through this process, or idolaters in general. They grow their God, or this tree, and then they turn it into a God, and then they worship it. They fall down before it and say, Deliver me, because you are my God. He's trying to show them the silliness of that through the prophet Isaiah. And and then in verses in 18 through 20 is the conclusion of the section on idolatry where he ultimately shows what happens to those who trust in false gods. Look at what he says. He says, They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. What he is saying here, I want to make this clear, is that ultimately, those who continue to worship false gods, it is God who covers their eyes. It is God who hardens their heart and darkens their eyes from seeing anything. It's like this, you want to reject me, Israel? Then you go ahead, because you're going to come to a point where I'm going to cover your eyes, your eyes and you know block your heart cover your ears from understanding what you're doing and that's what he describes here he says they can their hearts so they can't even comprehend what's really going on look at verse 19 he continues and no one recalls nor is there knowledge or understanding to say i have burned half of it by fire and also have baked bread over its coals i roast meat and eat it then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He said, you guys don't even understand what you're doing anymore. This is how silly it looks. He goes on, he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So as he's holding the idol, he doesn't realize that this is just a lie. I can't even say that because I don't even understand How far I've fallen from God! It's almost like I I think uh, of—I think it was—I think it was Saul, or maybe it was—I'm getting my people mixed up. Could be Samson. Oh, Samson, where he didn't even know that the Spirit of God had departed from him because he was so far in sin. And really, that describes our culture today. Our culture is so engrossed in sin. That it doesn't even realize what it is doing and how far it has sank. a matter of fact, I started reading this chapter a few weeks ago and talking about this very same topic about our culture. Turn with me to the book of Romans, looking at chapter 1, starting in verse 24, because the Apostle Paul is talking about this very thing, how a culture so engrossed in denying God and worshiping the creation rather than the creator that ultimately God gives up on a culture and allows them to sink into total depraved sin and all kinds of sin and I hate to say it but this totally describes the culture that we live in today that totally rejects God on every level and has sunk into all kinds of depraved sin and we live in it at this very moment Look at starting in verse 24. He says, therefore, God gave them over. So this is the example in Isaiah where he says God covers their eyes. People have sinned so far that God says, you know what? If that's what you want to do, then go out and do it. It's like a parent. When a parent kicks their child out of the house, you don't want to live by the rules. You don't, I'm not going to help you anymore. Just go out and live on your own. And they just sink farther and farther down because they don't realize how far have they fallen? This is the culture that the Apostle Paul is talking about. He says, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So here Apostle Paul is saying God's given up on the culture. He's allowing them to do what they want. And then he describes the type of sins that a culture partakes in because of this. He says for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who has blessed forever amen And he says this for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own penalty, the due penalty, excuse me, in their own persons, the due penalty of their heir. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved minds to do the things which are not proper. If you don't understand what he's talking, he's talking about homosexuality. That is the result of people's total rejection of God. And God says, if that's what you want to do, then go for it. It's depraved. It's improper. It is not becoming of a culture. It is definitely not becoming of a believer. And he goes on to describe, that's not the only thing. He goes on to describe other sins as well. Let's look at verse 29. And being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, there's that word again, they don't even understand what they're doing, a culture's sunk so far that they're partaking in all these sins, They're untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, that not only do the same, this is definitely our culture, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Our culture doesn't only participate in all kinds of sinfulness. They want everybody to approve of it and accept it, no matter what it is. And this is the result of God turning his back on individuals and a culture. And so here God is going back to our text now in Isaiah 44. He's saying this is what happens when you totally reject God. God covers your eyes, darkens your understanding, so you don't even realize what you're doing anymore, and you're going to reap what you sow. Right, And that's what he says in verses 9 through 20. Again, that was a stark contrast than what God says, what he does for his people. And then look at what he says here in verse 21. And this is really the the application for the nation of Israel. So he kind of presents this case. Okay, this is who you are. This is who I am. And this is what idolatry is and what it leads to. Now, what are you going to do, Israel? He says this, verse 21. Remember the things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. He says, remember, remember what I've just said, remember who you are. Again, remember the past. Remember what God has done for you is really the application of point number one. Remember what he has done. He says, again, I have formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, and you will not be forgotten by me. Here in verse 21, he reminds the nation of Israel, your application for all these things is to remember what God has done for you. I've provided for you. I've made you my own special people. And in verse 22, he's gonna tell them he's saved them from their sins. Look, he says, I've wiped away your transgressions like the thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist Return to me, for I redeemed you. He says, this is what I've done for you, Israel. I'm never going to forget you. Look at verse 21. He says, you remember me. I'm going to remember you. I'm never going to forget you. As a matter of fact, instead of forgetting about me, Israel, why don't you return to me? Remember me. You're the redeemed. You're my redeemed people. Remember what I have done for you. And I would say that to each and every one of us in the church today, when you're going through those hard times again, remember what God has already done for you. We sung about it all morning, all that God has done for us. So even when something goes bad, don't let that deter you about who you are in Christ and who he is for you. He is still the God that saves and shows mercy and grace. So remember what God has done And not only that, remember what God will do for you, right? He will provide for you and he will save you from the world. That's what he says. I've wiped away your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. I've already saved you from this world. I've called you out to be my own special people. I provided for you. And again, that's true for each and every one of us this morning that are believers. We need to remember what God has done for us and what God will do for us, right? He's not only saved us from our sins, but guess what? At the final consummation, at his second coming, he calls each and every one of us out of this world into eternal rest where we will live as his servants before him for all eternity. And then he concludes in verse 23, so not only should you remember what God has done and what God will do, but remember, remember God with praise. This is the natural kind of should come out of us because of what God has done and what he would do is to praise him. Look at verse 23. He says, shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower part of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. So the natural response to all that God has done for us and here for the nation of Israel should be praised. We are praising God for what he's done. Again, we have praised God this morning because he delights in mercy and loves to shine his grace upon us and show us grace. We should praise God for that because each and every one of us does not deserve that. It is God who bestowed that on us and we trust and believe in that so we should shout for joy and shout joyfully. And praise God. And then finally and lastly, don't, not only do we remember him with praise, but we remember him in our obedience to him. Look at the end of verse 23. He says, For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. And I made mention of this earlier, that as Israel remains faithful to God, he's going to draw people to himself. He's going to glorify himself through the nation of Israel. And the same is true for you and me as believers, for us as a church. As we walk in obedience to God, he's going to glorify himself through us. And as we walk in obedience to the Lord, he may draw some people to himself through us. Right? We are. He calls Israel here that you are my witnesses earlier. We too, as a church, we are his witnesses. And as we walk in obedience to him we glorify God, God can use us to draw people to himself. Therefore, let us remember him in obedience for all that he has done. And I want to put up this last quote. I'm hoping it comes up. I don't know. We you have another quote? But it was a quote from the commentator that I was reading on this section, but I'll just read it. But that's a good quote right there on your bulletin. But I like this quote about obedience. It says this, The recollection of what God has done in the history of Israel is what ought to motivate the people to obedient living. So by remembering what God has done to the nation of Israel was going to motivate them to be obedient. And by us remembering what God has done for us will motivate us or should motivate us to live obedient towards him so that he might glorify himself through us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you uh, once again for this morning. We thank you specifically for your word that reminds us that we, it's okay to live in the past when we remember what the past is, remembering what you have done for us, remembering that you have called us out of darkness and into the light, remembering that we were at one time not your people, but now are your people. And so as we move forward in our own lives, we can remember that no matter what happens, you are the God of all the universe. You are fighting for us, and we are not to fear or tremble no matter what comes our way. And Lord God, when we do fear or tremble, may we quickly remember who you are and who we are to you so that we might not fear and we might walk in obedience after you. And this morning, Lord God, I pray if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know you yet, who maybe is in danger of being totally blinded and given over, that they would hear your call, that they would come and receive you as their Lord and Savior, that you might be their King and their Redeemer this morning. And for those of us who are believers, Lord God, and, and we're in various just various things in life that are going on that can pull and distract us and keep us from following after you. I pray, Lord God, that we would always remember how special we are to you and how great of a God you are for us and that we might leave this place remembering those things, remembering to praise you and remembering to walk in obedience so that you might draw all men to yourself through us. And we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.